Support for Wavemakers comes from listeners like you and the Tampa Bay Times. The Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper is available around the Tampa Bay area and online at tampabay.com. Thanks to the Tampa Bay Times for their support. Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Tom and Janet, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And running the board today is Stealthy Like a Panther, John Dunn. Answering the phones is DJ Spaceship. If you want to join our conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663 and DJ Spaceship (laughs) will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Our guest today has been making waves in Florida conservation circles for decades. Carlton Ward Jr. is a nationally recognized conservation photographer whose efforts to save the endangered Florida panther and the habitat on which it depends was documented in the moving 2022 film Path of the Panther now streaming on Disney Plus and Hulu. This is Carlton's second visit to Wavemakers, and we look forward to discussing what he's been up to since he was with us 18 months ago. Welcome to Wavemakers, Carlton. Glad to be back. Thank you. Um, Carlton's stunning photos are now on display at the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts in Ybor City through March 17th. <coughs> Many of the images have also been collected in the National Geographic Society book, Path of the Panther, New Hope for Wild Florida. The book serves as a companion to the Path of the Panther documentary, which will be screened at the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts on Sunday, the Sunday. On March 7th, uh, Carlton will give a talk at the museum about the exhibit. Um, as Tom mentioned, uh, Carlton is a conservation photographer, and the goal of his work is to inspire appreciation and protection of all the flora and fauna who share this beautiful world with us. He's the founder of Wild Path, a nonprofit made up of explorers and conservationists who use storytelling to bring about policy change. Um, the film, The Path of the Panther, is one of Wild Path's projects, and we'll talk more about that later. They've also done films about the ghost orchid in Tampa Bay, but one of Wild Path's land campaigns involve the Florida Wildlife Corridor. The corridor is 18 million acres of land that stretches from the Georgia border to the Everglades and is home to more than 200 endangered plant and animal species. Um, Carlton, give us an update on that. When you were last here in August of 2022, the state had just agreed to protect 20,000 acres of the corridor, which is a small portion of it. What's happened since then? 2023 was another big year for the Florida Wildlife Corridor. It's been a really good year. Um, The lawmakers in Tallahassee continue to own a position of leadership in investing in land conservation. Last year, 2023, there was nearly a billion dollars allocated for conservation in the corridor, some through the existing programs like Florida Forever and residual funds in the Rural and Family Lands Protection Program, and then some special allocations for corridor connectivity in Collier County and then up in the St. John's area. They're in session again, so we're hopeful hopeful they'll keep it up. But last year, there were 111,000 acres approved for protection in the corridor. And that sounds like a lot, but it's actually right at the pace that we need to maintain for the rest of the decade if we want to actually save this thing. Um. So it is a quite a bit, it's 18 million acres and how it's 10 million of it is protected. Is that correct? 
That is true. So the Florida Wildlife Corridor, think of it as a connected green space that goes through the heart of Florida, through the peninsula and through the panhandle. It's comprised of 10 million acres that are currently protected. Those are places like Everglades National Park, Ocala National Forest. 75 of our 175 state parks are in the Florida Wildlife Corridor, plus different state and federal properties. Those are the stepping stones of the connected landscape. The 8 million acres in between, the ones that are not yet protected, are typically working lands. So these are predominantly cattle ranches in the south, timberland and forestry lands in the north, orange groves and other forms of agriculture also provide connection. Those 8 million acres of working lands are the ones under the greatest threat for development because, as we know, 1,000 people a day are moving here and it's putting a lot of pressure for people to sell out and convert to what some of the ranchers call the final crop, and that's rooftops. <laughs> and <clears throat> some of our friends have a hashtag, ranches, not rooftops, and working to empower those landowners who are holding the state of Florida together with their agricultural lands to do conservation easements and find alternatives to the development. So really it all lies on the future of those working lands and how many of those can continue to be protected and come into the corridor's conservation status and how many are going to be lost. And that's our current race against time to save enough to keep it connected. So right now it's really all about, at this point, about funding to protect the corridor. Funding is is the limiting factor right now, um, or has been in the past decade, and it's starting to not be the limiting factor anymore, but that can't be taken for granted. We have ranchers and farmers representing millions of acres of land who are on lists waiting to participate in conservation programs. Mm -hmm. And those lists went stagnant for the previous decade where barely any movement was happening. Now, state leaders are really seeing the wildlife corridor as an infrastructure investment that Mm -hmm. is great for wildlife. It's also great for our resilience and for our economies. And in treating it as such, it's getting an appropriate priority. And that is finally getting those lists moving again, where landowners who have been waiting and holding off and ignoring the calls of the developers are having a chance to secure that land's future. The Florida Wildlife Corridor Act was passed in... 2021 unanimously and i mentioned unanimously because i can't think of very much substantive legislation that passes tallahassee unanimously so how much do you credit uh the storytelling that you've been able to do and the florida panther with getting uh, legislators on both sides of the political spectrum to agree that this is something they want to do storytelling plays an important role in helping people identify with a landscape because excuse me here in florida most of us live on the coastline or in an urban area there are not so many of us that are still getting up and being on those wild spaces every day and so they're out of sight out of mind and without an identity without a story people will make up their own story about what they mean or what their importance might be and in in the state of florida land conservation inadvertently got polarized for a while where um, it seemed like maybe... A, Tree huggers. Yeah, like, like, a, like, like a liberal... left-wing crazies want to protect the environment. Well, because you look at Florida's <laughs> land conservation balance sheet, you know, we have 27% public land in the state of Florida, mm-hmm. which is something that Texas has like 2%. Yeah. So if you're a lawmaker looking from a conservative perspective 
why do we need more protected land? We have 27%. But you put it on a map and you start to look at these decades of investment and these amazing gems of natural areas are going to lose their vitality if you don't keep them connected to each other. It makes sense. And mm-hmm. so the, the Florida Wildlife Corridor story um, reframed the conversation not to some endless environmental land grab just to buy land for the sake of buying land, but to protect land with a purpose that really makes a lot of sense for everybody. Well, the thing about your photos and your videos is that you take people into places that they can only imagine. Most people don't go into the green swamp. They drive by the green swamp. Um, will the corridor be more accessible to people so they can experience it in person, you think? Is that a, is that a possibility? I mean, to begin with, the, the photographs can be a real portal for people to identify with something they might not actually visit. It can also be a catalyst to get people excited to get back outside. And I think rediscover the amazing network of public lands we already have. There's not really much limit. You know, we, we don't have a limit or restriction on the land we have. I'll rephrase that, though, because as our population grows, we need more land and more parks to serve our growing population. But there's a tremendous network of state parks, state forests, and national and county parks out there to explore, but they haven't had an identity that gets people connected with them. You know, I show people pictures and they still think these came from somewhere out West or Mm -hmm. somewhere in Africa because it's not yet been in Florida's mainstream identity. And actually this stuff is a half hour away from them, maybe, you know. Well, in our area, Hillsborough River State Park. Hillsborough River State Park. You You feel like you're back in Hernando de Soto days when you're in a kayak on the Hillsborough River there. Very early in my career, I just come back from college um, in North Carolina. I was taking some pictures on a small island near Ancloak Key for a architect from Clearwater who actually owned the land. And I brought the pictures back and he was blown away that those pictures actually came from Florida. And this was a lifelong Floridian, but there's just not that <clears throat> identity always that goes with these amazing places. And that was motivation from the beginning of what we can do with storytelling and, and with photography in particular to help people reimagine and reconnect with wild nature that's often hiding among us. You're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, and we're here today with Carlton Ward, a conservation photographer. We're talking about the great work that he is doing um, to protect um, Florida lands. Um, if you want to join the conversation, you can email us at dj at wmnf.org or call us at 813-239-9663. And if you want to see Carlton's work, it is in... Um, his book, The Path of the Panther, um, but also his work is on display right now at the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts in Ybor City. And it's Tom and I were there at the opening, and it is really incredible to see these images at a very large scale in that space mm-hmm. all together. Um, and again, what struck me about it was just the beauty of the photographs of the animals, but also juxtaposed, like you said, the final crop aerials of the um, housing developments, and then also pictures of the people who live off the land, the ranchers and the farmers and the people who um, make a living off of the land and and survive on it to a certain extent, just the way the um, flora and the fauna do. So it's been a while since you've had an exhibit in um, the Tampa Bay area. Where was this exhibit before and where is it going next? 
I'm really excited to have the exhibit here in 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 my hometown of of Tampa and you know these pictures didn't come easily. You know I, I it took 5 years 6 years to get the photographs that made up the National Geographic story that went into the Path of the Panther book and are now on display in this exhibit. So I haven't been out showing my artwork for a long time. I've been out in the swamps making art, tending to camera traps <laughs> and you know, there, <clears throat> there are two photographs in the exhibit, both camera trap pictures. One of them is of a panther walking beneath Interstate 75, crossing from Picayune Strand State Forest onto the adjacent Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, you know, safely underneath with a semi-trailer whizzing on the, on the road above. That took five years of camera trapping a single location for those elements to come together into that frame. And a camera trap is when you leave a camera out in the wild and that automatically takes photographs like tripped by movement or something. Is that how it works generally? Exactly. That's okay. how it's supposed to work. Um, <laughs> but, but this is... Um, the, 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 the film, Path of the Panther, really does document uh, the, the what frustrations, can <laughs> what can go wrong. Uh, sometimes amusing. I'm sure you weren't amused at some of these... Uh, uh, the, 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 when the bears attacked your cameras, that was a that's quite a scene in the film. I can look back and laugh now, but <laughs> but you know th this is this is, these are professional camera systems and in customized waterproof boxes with infrared triggers and strobe lights hanging in the trees. It's basically a studio you set up on a trail in the woods and select the background that you want to provide for the context and then. And then you wait and hope that the panther or the bear is going to come through. And at that exact instant, everything's going to work. But for that to happen in the swamps of South Florida, where you're getting sometimes 90 inches of rainfall a year, vegetation grows like so quickly you can almost see it and hmm. covers up your lenses. Um, we, we had a lot of challenges and it took a lot of time. Not to mention that the panther is super rare and super elusive. Right. You know, all my life in the Florida woods, I've only ever seen three with my eyes. Um, one, only one before I started this project. I've only ever photographed one panther in the wild with a camera in my hands. And, and so, one of them is in the film yeah, and you're in a plane. Yes. That, that was amazing to me. That, that was a moment. Um, what you don't see is that I utilized that little white bag on the back of my seat <laughs> five times during that oh, flight. No. Um, <laughs> you're going to take your bonine or Dramamine, you do it. You should do it the day before, not that morning when you get on the airplane. Um, and those guys, hats off to them, and they they put that airplane into it into a tight circle and pinpoint the location with the VHF antenna where the collared panthers are on the ground throughout the landscape. They do it three times a week. Um, yes, I got to see a panther from an airplane. That was awesome. Um, and then I spent quite a bit of time laying down on the tarmac after we landed to get myself <laughs> recollected. Well, you said, so one of those photos in the <clears throat> in the show took five years, the one with the panther going underneath the interstate. And then what was the other one you were going to mention? There was another one you were going to talk about. There's a photograph of a, I, I believe it's a female panther, um, walking towards the camera between cypress knees on a dark peat soil trail um, going through a pond apple and cypress swamp in the Fakahatchee Strand. This is this primordial swamp habitat that first captured my imagination about the wildness of this part of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. It's the first place I put a camera trap when I started the Path of the Panther Project in 2015. 
it was underwater for six months or more every year. And so I'd only get a small window to try, to try to capture a panther in an environment that could be nowhere in the world other than South Florida. And so it's not a mountain lion walking down a trail on a ranch in Texas or Colorado or California. This is the subtropical wilderness of the Everglades. <clears throat> and it's the wildest place in the East that actually is the reason we still have panthers anywhere this side of the Mississippi River today. Mm -hmm. You know, just to remind listeners about the panther and why it's so special, this is, it's a puma. It's the same as its cousins in California or Texas or even down in Argentina, but is the last breeding population of pumas anywhere in the eastern United States. They were hunted and persecuted and pushed out of existence everywhere this side of the Mississippi River, except for the remote swamps of South Florida. They were so wild, so inhospitable, so inaccessible that there wasn't conflict with humans. And because of those remote swamps and because of the panther's ability to persist in those remote and you know, arguably marginal areas for wildlife, by the 1960s, 1970s, when an environmental ethic was taking hold, they went from a persecuted species to a conservation species and mm -hmm. one of the first animals on the Endangered Species Act. So there's this amazing comeback story for conservationists long before me who were helping champion the protection of these lands, the big stepping stones of the corridor like Big Cypress National Preserve. Many of these things saved for the benefit of our state animal, the panther. We're, we have 200 panthers today, but there needs to be more than three times that many to be genetically viable. The only way that's going to happen is to have access to more territory throughout the state. And right now, the northernmost known female panther in the state of Florida is about on latitude with Fort Myers. There have been four or five documented north of the Clusahatchee River since 2016, as featured in the Path of the Panther film. But two of those have been dead on the highway. So it's mm. really a tenuous recovery. And the only way we're going to expand panthers to historic territory in Central Florida, North Florida, and beyond is for female panthers to find themselves there. We should probably mention, too, that the, one of the reasons you want to connect all these lands is because the panther and other animals, including bears, have a very uh, long range, right? They, they cover a lot of territory. <clears throat> is that right? Yes, exactly. And that's a very important point to make um, because we say something like tripling the number of panthers, you could think, well, they, you could have 600, 700 panthers in the Everglades, but no, you know, Southern Florida is pretty much full as far as panther territories because a single male panther has a home range of 200 square miles. That's four times the size of Miami, twice the size of Orlando for a single animal. That's why it's one of the reasons they're such great ambassadors for the need for wildlife corridors because there are very few properties under an individual ownership in the state of Florida that can serve the needs of even one panther. It almost always requires adjacent properties working together as a connected whole. So that panther needs to move freely through the state forest, the cattle ranch, the national park, and it doesn't know the difference. It's just home. And if we protect the land that we need to protect for panthers, which have such vast home ranges, biologists call it an umbrella species. So you save the needs for that animal. Then you have rooms for dozens of bears and thousands of deer and hundreds of bobcats and all the hundreds of other species that live in the panther's domain. 
and it goes way beyond wildlife. You know, there there was a moment in this project, probably the biggest like kind of lightning bolt in my mind when I first got a f- picture of a female panther north of the Clusatchee River in 2016. Worked with a state biologist to document an animal that they discovered on Babcock Ranch. Um, I shared that first picture with a cattle rancher I admire named Kerry Lightsey. Mr. Lightsey and his family have 90% of their land protected in conservation easements, mainly around the headwaters of the Everglades, Lake Kissimmee, but on down through the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And I said to Kerry Lightsey, what do you think about panthers coming back to the Northern Everglades where you have your ranches? And I was on, I was like I, like I was in that era of my life, standing knee deep in swamp water, servicing mm-hmm. a camera trap when he called me back. And I'll never forget his voice like emanating through the Cypress swamp on my speakerphone. He's like, Carlton, the Panther's going to have to help us save Florida. Mm. And he went on to say, because it's going to show people why we need to protect these large areas. And so there it was, everything I'd written 2,000 word articles about and spent years trying to photograph in, in one sentence from, from a generational rancher making the point. And that idea is, is proven to be true. And you, you go to the Path of the Panther film, there's another rancher named Elton Langford, who interestingly is a 13th generation Floridian. And I'm trying to figure out how that's possible, but he descends from Spanish in St. Augustine. His family apparently sold cattle to the British and the Spanish and the mm-hmm. British again. Um, well, Elton says in the film that, you know, the Florida rancher is also an endangered species. Mm-hmm. And environmentalists and government leaders aren't going to spend millions of dollars to save the cowboy. But if people will come together and spend the money to save the habitat for the panther and he and that panther can get along, everyone benefits. So we know that there is no future for the panther or really any of these wide ranging wildlife without the preservation of ranch lands and working lands. But in an interesting circle, that panther can actually help save that ranch. Mm-hmm. Um, Path of the Panther is streaming on Hulu and Disney Plus. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it highly. It's a fantastic movie, just fabulous. And there'll also be a screening this Sunday at the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts. What has the reception been like to the film? I mean, you, it has a goal. There's a mission. Are you feeling like it's accomplishing its mission? It's been really awesome to get the story out into the world. Um, we, we screened the film in the IMAX theater in Tallahassee during legislative session last year. Um, the Senate president, Kathleen Pasadomo, who's a big supporter of the Florida Wildlife She's Corridor. from Naples, so she knows that landscape. Yeah, you know, she understands the legacy. And, and you know, in her words, she describes the Florida Wildlife Corridor as Florida's Central Park. <laughs> and she believes that the 50 years from now, people look back at the legislature from the 2020s and say, this is the greatest contribution to protecting some kind of balance in the state of Florida. So to be able to show the film and have it be a point of pride for the people whose decisions are saving the land is really rewarding. It's also amazing to hear from people who just find it in the general public. Someone from South Florida said it's it's been life-changing because it made them reconnect with wild Florida and go start paddling rivers on the weekends and Mm -hmm. has changed their relationship to the place that they live. And then it, the story is resonating beyond Florida. Um, 
It's, it, it's did the film festival circuit in 2022 before starting to stream this year. And an audience in India was talking about, you know, this is, this is just like what we're dealing with with tigers and elephants and new highways coming through. So it's a universal story. Um, we're screening it at the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts this weekend. I'm actually going out to Los Angeles um, for another screening next week where I'm joining a good friend of mine, Steve Winter, another National Geographic photographer whose pictures of a cougar under the Hollywood sign helped inspire a movement to create a wildlife overpass near Los Angeles that reconnects fragmented parts of, of, of puma habitat out there. I just have a question. How do the animals know where to cross? How do they know, know that that's where the crossing is? Because they make these underpasses for them, but how do they know where they are? It's a long highway. <laughs> yeah, they, they read the traffic signs. <laughs> yeah, they have like little maps. They have GPS on their little portable phone. Yeah, they're flashing lights. Phones, they wait. Um, no, the, the a wildlife crossing is definitely not a silver bullet solution, but there are a few things that have to come together for them to work well. The number one most important thing is you have to have that connected wildlife habitat on both sides of the road. So it's all about keeping that robust green connection. Once you have that, then you have time to come back and retrofit your roads or put in permeability to the to that built human infrastructure. But what people don't always recognize is it's also combined with cross fencing. And so these areas between Naples and Fort Lauderdale on I-75, there are more than 30 wildlife underpasses under that road, but the entire length is fenced. And so <laughs> it basically funnels the animals towards the only safe passage. Okay. There's not an option to go over the road unless you want to jump an eight foot fence and tend with some barbed wire. <laughs> and so you're, you're, you're directing the animals to the safe passage. Once they find it, once they learn it, they use it and they teach their offspring to do it. And well, you it, have photos in your, uh, your show of, of, of panthers using the crossing, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, we were in, when we were in, Af in um, uh, Morocco, we saw a camel crossing. We were going down this <laughs> highway in the middle of the desert, said camel crossing. And then literally like 10 minutes later, we saw camels crossing the road. So the animals know, I guess. It's just kind of interesting. Um, you were, you were talking about being in Tallahassee. We just talked a little bit earlier about funding in Tallahassee. Senate but President uh, Pasadena is a big supporter yeah. of yours, but she's only in, for the, she's in her final session. Um, what is going to happen this year? Are you going to get some more funding? That's our hope. I mean, you know, my team at Wild Path and some of our close um, partners are advocating for $600 million of conservation investment for the Florida Wildlife Corridor this year. Um, there was an economic study done with colleagues at the Florida Wildlife Corridor Foundation and the Live Wildly Foundation a few years ago that showed that we, we stand to lose 500,000 acres of the corridor by the end of this decade with the current development patterns. And it set up a priority of those 8 million acres that are the opportunity to protect in the corridor. We need to save 1 million acres by the end of the decade, by, by 2030. Um, there's been good progress. There's 800,000 acres to go. But in order to sustain that, in order to reach that goal, we need to be protecting about 10,000 acres a month. So that 111,000 acres that got approved last year, that needs to be the new baseline and the new standard of conservation across this decade. To do that, there needs to be 600 million or more dollars invested at the state level that gets matched with 
private dollars and federal dollars that comes together to make this possible. Those sound like big numbers. It is a lot of money, but I want to put it in perspective with the other infrastructure investments. The Department of Transportation spends nearly $15 billion every single year on Florida's roads and in transportation infrastructure. And as we start to see wildlife corridors and green space as infrastructure, making an investment of 10% of that isn't that much of a stretch. And it's so important for all aspects of Florida's economy and well-being that I think it's, you know, finally getting the attention it deserves. And, and I'm just curious, how does, it's not like you can spend a lot of time with a panther, but how do they spend their days and what are they, what are they feeding on? You, I, I have not spent a lot of time with a panther. You're exactly right. Unless you, <laughs> unless you want to go to Zoo Tampa and you can, you can spend time admiring Walter or <laughs> Lucy or, or Mickey and Opie, forth. Um, a- which I, 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 I get transfixed because, you know, I, I chase these things as ghosts in the swamps for little glimpses on the back of a camera or tracks in the, in the mud. So to be able to go and just look at a panther and have it look back at you after <laughs> all that, it's really, it's really an awesome opportunity. Um, no, but panthers are predominantly nocturnal. Um, during the middle of the day, the heat of the day, they'll be laid up under a cabbage palm or in a palmetto clump, <clears throat> but they, they hunt at night. Um, the female panthers, blow my mind. I mean, I mean, sorry, the females are superior in what they have to do in the world. Uh, that's fine. I don't mind you saying that. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> thinking about, thinking about a female panther, I mean, to answer the question about what they eat, they're, they're evolved to, as ambush predators to stalk animals like white-tailed deer. So the preferred food in Florida would be a white-tailed deer. And they're also quite fond of feral hogs which have had, that's okay. The yeah, ranchers that, would probably like that. Yeah, that's that's the kind of the the net positive of having panthers back. They also eat things from coyotes to raccoons to. Any, they don't mess with the cattle. They do. Um, there there are losses to cattle. It's more often in places like in deep South Florida where you have big public lands, um, next to next mm-hmm. to private ranches. But so, back to the female panther for a minute. So she has to hunt and kill a deer about once a week. When she has a litter of kittens, she also has to nurse those kittens through the first few months of their life. And so she'll have her kittens hidden hidden in a den. Every night, she'll have to go strike out and hunt. And then she comes back to the den the next day to feed and protect the kittens and then does it all over again. And Mm -hmm. just... She can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan. Meanwhile, <laughs> the male panther is sitting around smoking cigarettes. Yeah, <laughs> or de- defending its territory. It's not an easy. It's a different kind of job. But you, you. Who's going after the panthers? Um, you know, bumpers Human of beings. bumpers of Cadillacs. Right. I mean, it's yeah. it's um, it's it's habitat loss. I mean, there are. Historically, we have hunted them out of existence, yeah. and there are panthers who get shot in the world still. And you know that's that's part of the reality. But it's really the habitat loss and the vehicle strikes that are, that are the main threat. Um, we're talking to Carlton Ward Jr., conservation photographer, who has um, an exhibit up right now at the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts. We'll be back um, to talk a little bit more about what is next. But for, with Carlton, but first, let's hear about another WMNF show that's all about the animals. 
Hi, this is Duncan Strauss, host of Talking Animals, now airing at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays. The time slot is new, but Talking Animals is in its 19th year and remains a show about animals and animal issues, chiefly revolving around a long-form interview with an important figure in the animal world. Guests have ranged from Jane Goodall to Amy Lou Harris to Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. The program also features music, comedy, news, and a quick quiz, Name That Animal Too. That's Talking Animals every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on WMNF. And we're back. So we've talked about the Florida Wildlife Corridor. We've talked about the um, Path of the Panther. What's next? I understand you're working on something sort of similar with the Gulf of Mexico. Tell us about that. Through the success of the Path of the Panther project, I am more convinced than ever of the necessary role of storytelling in conservation movements. I mean, I've, I've known that for a long time. I wrote my master's thesis on conservation photography and I surveyed and looked at examples of photography and storytelling in its, in its role in conservation campaigns. And it dates back to the world's first national park in Yellowstone. Um, I mean, there was Yosemite before that, but William Henry Jackson was a photographer with the U.S. Geological Survey who went and shot black and white photographs on like silver plates or you know glass plates that were shown to Congress in Washington, D.C. and part of the effort that turned that into a national park. More recently, one of my role models, Nick Nichols from National Geographic, when I was just when I was like coming up through college and graduate school, had done a project in Gabon in Congo and Central Africa. They did a 2,500-mile expedition three-part story in National Geographic magazine, and it inspired the president of Gabon to create 13 new national parks. Hmm. And <clears throat> you know, as the world's population urbanizes and people have fewer felt or seen connections with our wild places, storytelling is often the missing link. You know, science, scientists and science, you know, tells us, or you know, we know what we need to do to mm-hmm. <clears throat> help the climate to save biodiversity, but it's putting that science into action. Well, it's the stories that move you to action, it's, I think, right? Because that's what makes you feel things, maybe? That's a big part of it. And, <clears throat> and you, have to, you have to identify with something. Mm-hmm. You know, nature is out of sight, out of mind for so many people, and it needs an identity um, to bring people together into its conservation. We've seen it out west with the Yellowstone to Yukon project by you know a long, long-standing effort to name a regional conservation geography that's helped bring people together to help protect that landscape. We've seen it here in Florida's Everglades. There is really durable bipartisan support for the Everglades year mm-hmm. after year. It's because the Everglades has a story. Right. Well, that started with Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. I mean, she told the story, right? Exactly. The, that was the River, river of Grass. Of grass. And yep. it, it has an identity and a place in our imagination, a place in our minds. Um, you know, the state of the science for conservation across America, across the planet, is calling for protecting half of nature by 2050. So it's called Half Earth. E.O. Wilson, a famous biologist, wrote about this in one of his last books. But the idea is we need to protect half the land and half the oceans for nature to, to maintain a balance of life on Earth. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're less than 15% protection on the land or in the water. So there's a long way to go. But the science is there. Groups like the Nature Conservancy have maps 
that show us where we can make those wildlife corridor connections. And often what's missing is a story that leads to identity, it leads to political will, and it leads to action to protect them. And so I want to use and continue to use the Florida Wildlife Corridor story, the Path of the Panther story as an example and as a model that can be applied for wildlife corridors across our country and beyond. In terms of what I'm doing personally with my camera as a photographer, um, I'm going to be focusing on really my first love in nature, which is the Gulf of Mexico. I grew up in Clearwater with one foot in the heartland with cowboy cousins on, on ranches, but I first went snorkeling and exploring the grass flats with the Clearwater Marine Aquarium as a huh. young kid and you know, fell in love with nature through the Gulf. And so I'm so privileged that I get to have like a lifetime's worth of projects you know, right here at home. But the Gulf, it's a remarkable story. It's an, such an underappreciated ocean. You know, this is a biodiversity hotspot where you have sperm whales and whale sharks and all these amazing migratory species. The largest concentration of connected seagrass in the Gulf of Mexico is along Florida's nature coast between here and Tallahassee. Mm -hmm. And everybody's favorite mammal, the manatee. And the manatee. And the manatee is not just this animal hanging out in Florida Springs. They're wildlife corridor ambassadors. You know, science is showing that manatees are traveling from Crystal River to Mobile Bay and back. And they're just one example of species. Yeah, and dolphins. I, I find the dolphin thing, like as many years as I've been here, anytime I've ever gone out in a boat and seen dolphins, it's always exciting. Every time you see them, it's exciting. And manatees, of course. Same thing draw with the manatees, yeah. And, and, and you see them at the beach. You, you know, I've, I was uh, stunned once. I was floating along in the... Uh, the beach uh, in the water at Treasure Island, and all of a sudden, a manatee appears right next to me. It was stunning. And so those kinds of moments really do, uh, they, they move you, you know? And that's your moment of opportunity because once you, once you connect with someone's heart, you know, if we can tell the story of what that manatee needs to survive, and it's not just access to the springs and to the fresh waters, it's also conservation of the seagrasses. And what's it take to sustain seagrass? It, it, it means protection of the watershed. It means fertilizer, wa watching what we... Fertilizer, not too much fertilizer. Watching, exactly. Yeah. And it's the tail... Like, Florida is the tail of, you know, two coasts when it comes to the manatee. The Indian River on the East Coast is... Seagrass has died off because it, the water is dark. So will you be venturing into underwater photography? Is this... I'll be going back and... I mean, I've, I've done that throughout my career, but we're, we're working with scientists from from the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration who are satellite tagging whale sharks off Louisiana. And so we'll be going out with them this summer working to make a film and document those migration patterns. But it's about how it all connects. And my original motivation for going to the Gulf, not, not just because I love it, but because it's arguably the best story for why we need to save the wildlife corridor upstream. The reason Florida's nature coast is so relatively healthy and why the seagrasses are still thriving is because rivers like the Withlacoochee, the Steenhatchee, the Swanee, they're still flowing naturally. They're still flowing through green space. They're not flowing through fertilizer or development. And so you have, you know, nationally significant clam and oyster and aquaculture. You have a, th a thriving, relatively intact ecosystem and the marine environment is doing well in large part because what we're doing on land is compatible. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's all about saving the green space upstream to preserve the golf downstream and showing how it all interconnects. Yeah, the clam industry in the Cedar Key, for example, is huge. And I don't think a lot of people even realize how many clams are being grown right in those waters that you're talking about. Exactly. And those clamors are ardent water quality activists because it's not just about saving nature for nature's sake. If the Swanee River tilts out of balance, their aquaculture would get shut down. It's a big, it's a big uh, body of water, though. Where are you focusing? Starting with, with Florida's Nature Coast, we're working with marine biologist Sylvia Earle, who first fell in love with the Gulf in the 1940s when she moved to Dunedin. She was the first person to scuba dive for science in the Gulf. She has field notebooks from the 1960s when she did her master's and PhD work throughout these estuaries. So we're going to what she romantically calls the wilderness coast. And it's this area between Crystal River and Tallahassee where you still have wild rivers and protected coastline and thriving seagrasses. Telling the story from that perspective, looking at animals like the manatee, like the different species of sea turtles, like tiger sharks that are migrating and connecting this corner of Florida to the rest of the world's oceans and putting it all in perspective. So that's where it's going to begin. And, you know, it's all connected. So the stories will radiate out from there. Is the goal to get um, state funding for conservation easements in that area as well? There are a few policy goals for this, you know, coming into shape. These are ones that exist that we want to support with storytelling we want to sustain investment in the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. But similarly, there's a Flower Garden Bank National Marine Sanctuary that goes off the deepwater corals off of Louisiana and Texas. And we want to expand those protections off the coast of Florida through some of these offshore coral sites. There's also elevation and investment in estuary protection. Um, there's an opportunity on the nature coast to establish a national estuarine research reserve there. There are a couple um, national estuary projects like we have in Tampa Bay that could happen in Pensacola and other parts. So it's about creating stories that support the science and the policy efforts that are underway. A tremendous history in the Gulf of Mexico. And of course, uh, Jack Davis, University of Florida professor, won a Pulitzer uh, looking at the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it's one of my favorite books and part of my inspiration in this work. Is that in, right? In one of the, in the, in the introductory chapters to his, his monumental book, The Gulf, he describes this Winslow Homer painting from around 1900. And I'm just thinking about it now. It's the convergence of all the worlds I carry about, all the worlds in Florida that I care about because it's a, it's a painting of the Homosassa River with a palm sweeping out over it and a Florida panther on that palm tree. Hmm. And, you know, Winslow Homer likely would have seen that scene, you know, 120 years ago. And the land is still there and there's a chance to bring it all back. Of course, the Florida Springs are under tremendous stress and the springs feed the rivers that you mentioned. So how much of your work is also going to be um, focusing on some of the challenges there? Because it, it is... I mean, Justin, Jan and I have talked about this uh, over the years. We've gone to the springs and, you know, over the last 40 years, we've just seen these springs decline in quality. It's, it's, it's sad. Still hopeful, though, that they're going to be able to preserve them. That's another great example, and it all connects. Um, there's, there's a 
Tampa, another Tampa photographer, Jason Gully, who's a National Geographic contributor and a professor at USF, who did a phenomenal story on the Florida manatee. And he's probably the world's leading manatee photographer at this moment. Um, so it would be about connecting to existing work, helping elevate existing stories and connect them to policy opportunities. Because it, it all comes down, like our, our main audience for this storytelling, in addition to the public, is helping the decision makers connect with the legacy opportunity that they have to save places like this and to save animals like the manatee and the panther. Um, one of the things that you talked about when we were preparing for the show, um, you know, you've talked about how ranchers and farmers and environmentalists are working together. You're also finding allies with the military. Tell us about that. How is that working? It's such an interesting story. And it, there's a lot of success here rooted in Florida with the way military bases are such a vital part of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. There's a relatively new um, collaboration called the Sentinel Landscape. And that's where the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Interior, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture designate the land's in and around a military base as a sentinel land. Um, and they're recognizing that protecting that large landscape is absolutely vital, not just for the wildlife and ecosystem benefits, but for the military mission. Mm -hmm. Because if you're a fighter pilot wanting to do low bombing rains at, at nighttime, you don't want a subdivision or an RV park popping up on the edge of your mm -hmm. military base anymore than the tree huggers do. And so you have um, the military investing in conservation easements. And Avon, Par the Avon Park Air Force Range, um, you know, just east of here, huge part of the Florida Wildlife Corridor, 106,000 acres of habitat. They only drop bombs on 2,000 acres. <laughs> the rest of it looks like a national park. Right. And they do an amazing job of protecting it. They're also paying adjacent ranchers to keep their land out of development. That idea is scalable across the country. There are nearly 20 Sentinel lands designated throughout the United States now. The other one in Florida is Eglin Air Force Base in the Northwest Florida Sentinel lands, which goes from the Alabama border all the way back to Tallahassee. It's like 8 million acres of potential habitat. Same story there. They need to be able to preserve that connected green space for military training. So, so the, the military... Um uh, collaboration and just talking about your your model of storytelling um, in order to inspire policy change. As it's working in Florida, you're going to Los Angeles. You said to to screen the film. Have you done much traveling with the movie to to take these concepts to other places? Because 2050 is not too far off. We got a lot of protecting to do. That's exactly right. We have plans to screen the film in, in D.C. later this year. We did one screening at the National Geographic Society um, later last year, but there's a great opportunity to use the film and the book to help support many partners who are working on wildlife corridor efforts around our country for migration of other species through the Farm Bill to help preserve agricultural corridors. And this military story is one of those ingredients. Um, that's one thing that Wild Path is doing is going to be sending out photographers to other military installations across the country to create imagery packets to help tell these stories. Yeah, you. the other thing that you said yesterday when we were chatting, I loved, you said we need an army of photographers and videographers and storytellers. So all around the the country or to, to, to go ahead and, and document this. What what message do you have for people who, who care about um, 
these issues like you do. That's exactly right. I mean, I think anymore, you know, everyone is a storyteller. So get out with your camera, get out with your smartphone, tell your story, document the places you love. Um, we, we need to work to build a storytelling framework around these wildlife corridors that can then help, you know, grow these movements around the country and the world. You know, we'll be doing our, our small part here in Florida and the hope and the need is that other storytellers around the country will engage on telling the stories that elevate these landscapes into their ultimate protection. I guess another artist who has done the same sort of thing for the Everglades is Clyde Butcher. Absolutely. Yeah, Clyde, Clyde's a role model in a lot of ways, and he helped shift the perception of the swamp as this scary place that we want to avoid to a beautiful, revered landscape that we want to hang in our living room. And, and that idea of helping people reconnect and shift the identity of a place through art is what I've aspired to do across my career. It's what many of my heroes at National Geographic and other places do in their corners of the world. And it's what we need more of um, globally to help kind of fuel this movement to save these places. Well, uh, he also does swamp tours uh, right outside of his gallery. And so you can see where many of the photos were taken, but you can also experience in person the things that inspired him to take these great photos. He told me once that he was inspired really when he went to the Cypress Knee Museum, a roadside attraction. Uh, it's long gone now, but he went there and was just blown away by the landscape that he had never experienced. So when people get out there, these things happen to them, right? Absolutely. And I'd say photography and art, that's, that's the second best solution for connecting people to these places. The very best is to get out there, wade in that swamp water, you know, hike that trail, paddle that river, and, and reconnect yourself because anymore in the world, it's fragmented in every various application of that word. We are further and further disconnected from this natural world that is part of us all. And to get back into these places, there's no denying their importance for our well-being, for our spiritual well-being, for our vitality, and for the future generations. And that's my biggest hope is that this exhibit, these publications will be not just portals, but, but sources of inspiration for people to find their own connections back to these places. And this is the best time of year for people to be going out to experience it. If you go down to Clyde Butcher's uh, gallery down in the swamp, you're not going to be feasted on by mosquitoes. But that might happen in August, so you might want to get out there right now. Good idea. But you don't That's, have to go far because go just far. like we're saying, River State Park, there, there are parks, Fort DeSoto, there are great parks all around the Tampa Bay area that, you know, that you can go to. You don't have to go all the way down to the Everglades. Well, Florida or does state parks pretty well. We've got a really <laughs> impressive uh, An amazing uh, network. Yeah, it, and, it, there, it, and it really the, the rise of glamping and the, the little tiny houses at campgrounds and stuff, it's like there's no excuse not to go. You can, it's just, you know... It doesn't have to be a tent. You can just go out and spend some time in nature, spend the night out there, even if it's one night, and and it's you know life-changing experience. There, and it's good for your health. Being out yeah. in nature is good for your health, well, your there, mental there health and physical health. Are there you would recommend people uh, go explore or experience and, that are easy to get to? Absolutely. And I'm actually headed to Tallahassee tomorrow um, because our friends at the Live Wildly Foundation are working with the Florida State Parks Foundation to have Florida State Parks Day. We have 175 state parks. 
75 of those are in the Florida Wildlife Corridor. We, st- we have a lot of coastal parks too, which is the reason it's not all of them in the corridor. But right here at home, um, go to Hillsborough River State Park, go to Caladesi or Honeymoon State Park, you know, get out and explore these places. Maybe the least appreciated amazing place to discover so close to home is the Green Swamp. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people know that the Green Swamp even exists? This is 500,000 acres of wilderness, part of the Florida Wildlife Corridor, less than an hour from Tampa, headwaters of the Hillsborough River, the Peace River, the Ocklawaha River, the Withlacoochee. It's this water tower. It's the water supply for most of Pinellas County and a lot of Hillsborough County. And it's waiting there to be discovered. Huh. It's, it's, it's truly like, if this was Denver, Colorado, everyone would know that those are the Rocky Mountains. They might not ever go there, but they would, they would, they would, because they can see them from their their doorstep and they know that that's where our water comes from and that's where our wildlife lives. In Florida, it's hidden, hidden unless you make a point to get out there and, and rediscover it. So that's, that's an amazing thing for everyone to go do while the mosquitoes are at bay for the next three months. Well, other than taking photographs, going out there and enjoying nature. What can people do to um, support your efforts? Well, start by going to the museum and seeing the exhibit. Check out my fine art photography at my website, carltonward.com. That's that's one way to help keep me going with this work. And the film will be shown this Sunday at the museum at um, 6 o'clock, I think. And will you be there? I'll be there for the presentation on March 7th, on March 7th at the museum. And also um, go to wildpath.com, check out our work. One of the things we are doing, it's trying to build that army of storytellers. Um, We send out photographers, myself and others included, Lauren Yoho is a person from our team here in Tampa to photograph every property that the governor and cabinet are considering for conservation because these stories need to be told. And, you know, there's a cabinet meeting coming in March. We'll have pictures to go with those properties. And when the lawmakers decide to protect them, we can combine those pictures with maps from our colleagues at Archibald Biological Station to really show that collective progress. And you can start to see the corridor filling in. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like watching an election map as the colors <laughs> change from one to the next. And here, as you fill in those pieces of green, it motivates all of us to keep going. It helps us see the Florida Wildlife Corridor as something that we can achieve together. And so, you know, check those out. There's a, there's a whole section at wildpath.com forward slash progress where you can actually download the pictures and the maps and share them on social media. So stay tuned at the next cabinet meeting and help spread the word. Um, Carlton, thanks so much for being with us today. John, thanks for your fine work on the board. Um, and thanks to TJ Spaceship for watching the phones. Um, up next is Alternative Radio, followed by It's the Music with Harrison Nash. This is WMNF Tampa.